Hello and welcome to Mikey Pod. This is episode 224 for January 15th, 2017. Hello and welcome. Hi, my guest today is Arielle Hyatt. She is my own personal social media Jesus, uh, or I was going to... Now, <laughs> I was going to try to come up with like the feminine version of the name Jesus and Jesus. I don't know what that would be is. Uh, yeah, I, I'm at a loss. Maybe there isn't one. Jesus, Jesus, that it, it's the, the great thing about trying to make a joke that doesn't work is keeping on <laughs> trying to make it work. It. I'm going to let it go now. Ariel Hyatt is my own personal social media guru. Uh, I've known her for a long time. She was one of the first people to really leverage uh, podcasting. So I knew her from in the early days of this podcast. Um, and and I, I she represents a lot of artists. And I played music. So it was perfect for all of us. What is going on with my voice? I'm actually really tired. There's a uh, pot of black bean soup cooking on my stove. Um, oh, Ringling Brothers Circus is going out of business, you guys. I, uh, I am happy. I'm very happy about this. I'm not happy for the people who don't have jobs or who won't have jobs and, and anyone who, you know. But I am happy for the long-term meaning of this, which is they won't be exploiting animals anymore and then forcing them to make re- do ridiculous trips tricks and driving them around in trucks all around the country parading them through streets of towns like it's awful and i'm thrilled that this isn't going on anymore i could not be any happier uh so yay I'm goodbye. I was going to say I'm sorry, Ringling Brothers, but I'm not. I think what you did was despicable. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I am a little fired up. Yesterday, there was a big fur march uh, in here in New York City. We went to... Wait, did I... I didn't say any of my things about who I am. Did I? No, I didn't. Hi, I'm your host, Michael Heron. I'm a composer, pianist, electronic musician, storyteller, and activist based in New York City. And as such, I have some pretty diverse tastes in things. So on this podcast, you can hear guests ranging from activists to musicians to pastors to authors, whatever else strikes my fancy. I was just too heated about uh, about the end of that horrible place to do things right today. I've been sending this podcast to your ears for a little over 11 years. If you'd like to know more about me, stop by my website at michaelherron.com. Hit me up on social media everywhere as at michaelherron. Send an email to mikeypod at gmail.com. And that's it. It's so funny. I started doing that little blurb at the beginning of the podcast for people who were just listening. So I wonder if the people who are just listening to this episode for the first time turned it off, not knowing what the fuck was happening. Uh, I think I'm back on track now. So the other activisty thing that happened this weekend was a massive fur protest. It was a march from around the Flatiron Building, uh, around 23rd and Broadway. Is that where we are? Yeah. And we marched in the disgusting weather, uh, snow, wind, rain, sleet, um, all the way down to Worcester Street to the new Canada Goose store where they sell dog fur coats <laughs> stuffed with Feathers ripped out of live geese. Why wouldn't you want to stop into a place like that and buy a $900 coat? I sure need one. So we marched down there. There were 
150 to 200 of us. It was pretty amazing. Uh, and we protested there for a couple of days. So a couple of days, a couple of hours. Uh, yeah. So yay, activism. What's up? I feel really good when I do this stuff. However, I also feel a little bit run down today. Uh, I, that's a lot of weatherness. I need new snow boots. Uh, this is the sad tale of my. I desperately need new boots for this weather. Uh, mine are not in good shape. Um, I'll, they're in the budget for next month. Everything will be fine if I don't fall again like I did yesterday. I fell down on the street, but everything's fine. If you like this always free podcast or the many other things I create, tell a friend, leave a review, like, subscribe, all of the things, and especially I'd love your support at patreon.com slash Michael Heron, where you can get access to all kinds of cool stuff in exchange for as little as a dollar a day a month <sighs> honey for as little as a dollar a month i'd love to connect with you there and i'd love your help in covering the expenses for this free podcast and the other content i create everywhere i want to add something to this blurb and i'm going to try to just say it right now this whole exchange of a person creating stuff podcast videos music theater all the different things that i do uh you can be a part of that exchange <laughs> and you can be a producer at your own level of like just chunking a couple bucks my way each month. I'll exchange exciting new creations and content with you and, and you're, you can be a part of making it and it becomes like a cool thing, a cool, uh, sync, uh, synergy. I, the, I'm saying words I don't like today. Uh, but, it, but yeah, anyway, you get the idea. So on that note, let's get on to some music and some interviewage. Mm. Interviewage? Really? <sighs> this first track we're going to listen to uh, is actually handpicked by Arielle Hyatt herself. This is The Crickets from, uh, uh-oh. Their album, I believe, is called Spanish Moss Sirens, and this track is definitely called Cool Cool Water. Shine on my back someday 
here with Arielle Hyatt. Hello, welcome to the show. Hi, delighted to be here. Um, yay. I, we've known each other for like 10? 10 years. I've been doing this podcast for over 11. It's almost 12 years. Wow, pioneer. Yeah. <laughs> sort of. I've been listening to them lately and pioneering and doing it, but the show itself maybe was not so good. Well, but I think that's how it works. I think that's how it works. And I, yeah. I'm like, thank you very much, um, Serial, for bringing podcasting back into the mainstream, like in a huge way. So it's been... Oh, yeah, yeah. It's been really interesting to see how now everybody either has one or has their list of favorites. And it's not just us weirdos anymore. Yeah. Isn't that strange? Like, it was one of those things that I was always... First, I don't know what what part of my personality is that makes me do this. But I also, I was on Live Journal. Were you also on Live Journal? I was not, but I, I pitched a lot of people that were back yeah. in the day. And when I started doing that, people were like, why are you putting all of your store, like well, your life online? And I was like, oh, I don't know, I just like it. And now look at us. <laughs> Here we are. Yes. So we've known each other like in various ways as um, I used to get music from, from you for the podcast to get... Uh, Pod safe music, which I don't think we even use that word anymore. Oh, I know. It's, it's yeah. not a thing. Um, but then I went on, once I started doing my own work, you helped me uh, with my social media campaign. And then I learned so much from Social Media House and all this stuff. And I'm always sending people to you. So I'm super happy to talk to you. That's our story. What about you? Like, what, what got you involved and interested in doing public relations work? It, actually, my mom, when I was a teenager is a career counselor. And she said, I think this is something you'd be very good at. You're a good communicator. And it's an interesting dynamic job. And I went and became an intern at a friend of ours was running one of the top PR firms in New York in the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. And I started, I was 17 years old, I started interning my summer, my summer between, um, high school and college. And then I got invited back and I went back every year through all of college. Um, and they had a sister office in London. So I spent, spent a semester oh, or a, cool. a season in London. And so I really learned PR because my mom thought it would be a good fit for me. After about four years, I realized fashion wasn't my thing. I went to college. I majored in journalism and theater arts. And, um, 
I returned to PR. I started working at a record label and then it was a small label. So we did all the different departments, but PR was the one, of course, where I landed and I've been doing PR my entire adult life. Uh, nice. And then you were one of the first people to do like, I mean, the company is called Cyber PR. You're the first person that I heard of that did this sort of specific type of new media work. Yeah. Yeah. I get a lot of, um, credit for being an early adopter. And really it came because I could see the writing on the wall. My clients were the canaries in the coal mine. I was always working with independent artists. My company's 20 now. I could begin to see that independent artists were on the chopping block first. Mm -hmm. And journalists started saying to me, well, I can't really interview your band this week. I'm interviewing Elton John, or I'm interviewing, you know, fill in enormous name artist here. And I would think to myself, but you're a really small publication. You only have whatever, 20,000 readers. And then I realized there were fewer and fewer newspapers and fewer and fewer outlets. And the wire began to take over. And I could see my artists were not going to have a fighting chance in those ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So I turned to the internet very early on and clearly bet on the right horse. Yeah, do you think, um, and I keep, I say this to people who are complaining about, I shouldn't, that makes it sound a little pissy, uh, who like independent artists who are still upset that they're not able to sell music and the internet has sort of made that shift. But in a lot of ways, I feel like this also comes from my, from my perspective as having only recently started releasing my own music. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like it's a better situation for us. Like, is that, do you have that sense too? It depends on what day you ask me. I, I feel like some days I feel really excited about the fact that, you know, it's more accessible than ever and Spotify and Apple Music and however you want to get your music, it's it's all out there. But as a creator myself, as an author, I can see a palpable difference. People are not used to buying anymore. They mm-hmm. are used to subscription services. So, for example, my new book is up on Kindle Unlimited, which I can absolutely see has affected sales deeply. Um And so on some days I think this is so great and it's leveled the playing field, but on other days I have hard conversations with artists. They don't understand that Spotify is actually owned by the major labels and they Mm -hmm. don't understand that there's still a pecking order. And I think the most unfair piece of this game is we're now all forced to be doing social media and, and doing all this stuff on top of doing our art because now it's required. And that's, you know, some days you just don't feel like tweeting or putting out your next exciting piece of content. Like sometimes you might just want to like, I don't know, practice or book a gig or do the other 500 things you need to do to stay, you know, viable. So I think it's exciting, but definitely I can see, especially in the level of artists that we represent here at Cyber PR, the our clients aren't making as much money. And mm-hmm. so having these hard conversations about return on investment is a little brutal. Yeah, I, I've been having this conversation a lot because I've been in, interviewing independent artists mostly lately. And I'm sort of in that struggle. I just did my first solo show and and I've released an album, which you guys helped me with. Um, but it's a lot. It's like, like you're saying, like, I, I feel like I really want to communicate that to people who are audience members or fans. Uh, that's way more work than I ever imagined. Yeah. And there's that always a sense, it's like when I was doing the album especially, there was always the sense of like fe- of feeling guilty because oh, I'm not doing that thing on my list. And it's like, 
but I'm doing this thing on my list. Like there, I'm working constantly and still feeling that. So, but then you get to make a thing and people like it and it's great. It's a really great feeling. So yeah. yeah. Uh, so two things I want to talk about. Uh, one, obviously your book, but also your, um, the social media kickstart. Tune up. Tune up. Social media tune up. Social media tune up, which is uh, start. Tell me the dates on how that's happening. So, social media tune up is a eleven part course that I designed, which is was created as a companion piece to my book CrowdStart. So, something very interesting happened when I released CrowdStart just a couple of weeks ago. I did not anticipate that it wasn't going to go as huge as my other books. And I realize now exactly why. Not everybody's ready to crowdfund. And when they are ready, they'll buy the book. But it's not a general book of like, hey, just buy this book because it will help. So it's it's an interesting uh, new lesson for me in niche marketing that this is kind of going to be a book that people will buy when they're ready to crowdfund um, and probably not before. But the feedback that I received even when I had the book in in pre-pre-release, people were saying, wow, it's a lot of work in part one of the book, which talks about establishing your presence online. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to make a companion video series to help get people uh. through. So I created that as a bonus. If you buy the book, you get the 11-part series. And I did release it just today. We're recording today. It's free. It probably uh-huh. won't be free by the time oh, the yeah. show goes up. But so um, it if you buy the Kindle version, it's seven ninety nine. Just hit me on my website, and I'll put you through the course, the eleven day course. Um, that's so great! Like the thing about your stuff, and and I think partly I got a big like uh, I had a, I got immersed in your sort of philosophy through having you, the you, you guys did. I can't remember the name of the plan I used, but you set up, you laid out my whole like six weeks up until the album release. Maybe it was nine weeks. Yep. And after the release, yeah. and I learned so much, and so much of it became habit for me, which is great. Like, I, I didn't even realize it. I, as this last show that I did was coming up, I was like, oh, I need to get a social media or a graphics guy to get all my, my headers for all my social media to look the same. And all that. like, there were a lot of things that I just knew to do. Mm. Um, and it all comes back to you. Ooh, and, yeah. Yes. And the social media house was that the, that was yes, the name of a, like a series as well, it's right? It's still there. You can still take social media house on my website. It's free. It will always be free for musicians. Yeah. It's a nine port class. You can walk yourself through everything from your website to your newsletter to Twitter, and it just teaches you how to kind of get everything up into tip-top shape. Yeah, I send a lot of people to that, and I think that they sometimes are like, oh, that's a lot of work. So if you're one of those people that I sent that way, it's so valuable. It's so valuable to get that stuff all in order, and but and then it just stays in order. It's really, and then you just, it's like maintenance, yeah? That's true. That's the, that's what, that's the intention. It's like riding a bike. When you need to, you get up on the bike, you're perfectly balanced, you're not falling. <clears throat> that that should be how your marketing goes too. Yeah. I think. And that's been, you know, there were I think some things went under my radar when I was doing my album uh, with your with your guidance um, just because the time didn't happen and it taught me like uh, make it so that you can hire a person to actually do all this stuff. Um, but the parts of it that I was able to do are just like ingrained now and it's it's kind of great. Um, I crowdfunded my album before your book, luckily, I had two friends, one of whom had done a, uh, su- oh, they had both done successful Kickstarters. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I had no idea that how much work it was going to be. And I had one of them, I sent him, I'd be like, okay, I think my page is ready to go. And be like, nope. And I'd be another week of work. Um, but I went into it blindly. And now we have this great book from you. Um, it, well, what, what inspired you to really focus on crowdfunding? Well, exactly what you're talking about. I also did my crowdfunding campaign. <clears throat> and even though I had coached artists through it and I had thought that I was prepared, nothing prepares you for a crowdfunding campaign. And there's things you're not going to see. And I really wanted to make a roadmap to help people do all the steps because you're right. It, it, it takes so long to set it up and get it right. And you want to be really careful because you don't want to do it twice. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and you crowdfunded more than just your book, right? Yeah. So I crowdfunded my book, a rebrand of my company. So we had only been serving musicians and I really wanted to have a separate brand because when we work with entrepreneurs and other types of business owners, they were always confused that my website was music focused. So I needed money to do that. And then I needed money to launch and create um, Social Media House. So which is changing lives, as we mentioned before. <laughs> so um, the, as far as the book goes, it's broken down into five sections. Am I remembering that correctly? or is it- um, I think you are. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's preparing your online footprint is, is the oh. first. Uh, all the, well, actually, you're right. The basics of crowdfunding. Then we have sort of how you get your entire social media presence up so there's actually crowds on it. Part three is how to build your campaign. Part four is a step-by-step guide on how to get through it. And then part five are some tips on, you know, how to not screw up. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of screwing up, is there a, a common or most often committed mistake that you see people make with this? I think it's less a mistake and more a surprise. And the surprise is it's really hard to go out in front of every single human being that you know, that's what it feels like anyway, mm-hmm. and ask for money. And I, you're, even though you think you're doing an artistic project, you're really doing a sales campaign. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of, I don't think, I know so many people struggle with asking for money, sales. Artists are all supposed to starve for our art. That's the mm-hmm. point. And so this really uncomfortable element pops up when you're crowdfunding, which is, I don't deserve this. Or what do these people think of me asking for money? Or maybe I should have just dipped into my IRA. I mean, all this crazy stuff comes up. And it's not only your crazy stuff, your family, your friends, people start judging. So all this like other people's crap around money begins to show up in your crowdfunding campaign. So you have to be really mindful that the little nasty voice inside you might try to take you down. And I mean, my own mother sat me down and said, uh, we're going to give you your wedding fund because w- they were basically embarrassed. They thought uh, I was asking for charity. She didn't even realize what a crowdfunding campaign was. Yeah. So that happens. And that's the thing that I think is the hardest part of a crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. Uh, I had both sides of that. Like when, when it, the days that it was going slow and there were days that it like nothing happened, I was like, nobody cares. Right. Why am I even doing like all of that? Like self, loathing sabotage, sabotage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then the other side of it when i was like no this is what they like my friend said post every day i like had all this stuff set up so i had a, at least a different thing to say about the crowdfunding every day mm-hmm. but i had people send me messages i had a friend two friends text me like wow you're posting a lot about that 
about and I was like, yeah, that's kind of yeah, that's, that's what real. I have to do. Sorry. But and but there's that that sense of um, not wanting to appear like you're begging and um, and it's not like I was talking to Nate Maingard. I don't know if you know oh, this. Yeah, guy. of course. Yeah, he he was on the podcast a while ago and he put it so beautifully because we were talking about Patreon and. Um, and I can't, I still can't do it. I need to memorize how he said it. But he talked about this creating art being an energy and the listeners uh, if the, and the fans, part of the energy exchange is for them to help create the art. Right. Like it's partly that thing. And that, I think that's what I like so much about how this is happening now. It's challenging as it is. Yeah. There's, there's, it's much easier to connect with people and make that energy exchange, at least have it available to make you know yeah. than it used to be yeah i mean money is energy too you know yeah. t my teacher who helped me actually get over a lot of money stuff about 10 years ago is t harvecker he wrote the secrets of the millionaire mind mm -hmm. and he talked about that constantly money is energy so if you're focusing on the person that has a lot of money and you're resentful or if you're you know, constantly looking at like being broke or you have some sort of crazy, you know, money story in your family, like you didn't have any or yeah. someone was cheap or someone spent all the money you ha they had, whatever. Like you, you get this sort of blueprint around money and money is energy. So if you can give it with love, when you see someone, instead of having that knee jerk reaction of like, oh, look at that, you know, person that's showy or they have something you want and you're secretly feeling weird. Yeah. Thinking to yourself, that's for me, or good for that person, is a much more empowering way uh, of yeah. framing it. And kind of the same thing with crowdfunding. Like whoever's texting you going, wow, you're really posting a lot about that. Well, that they've got something going on with money. Yeah. Clearly. You know, so it, it's very important to, and I think fans and people who don't create art, they really don't understand. They don't understand how they're not supporting you is actually so painful. Mm. It's really an interesting, I mean, I think about like, until I did my crowdfunding campaign, I was writing books for musicians. A lot of my friends are not musicians. So none of my friends had ever purchased a book that I oh. ever wrote. It was, it's a very interesting, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. So yeah. then when I got to crowdfund, a lot of people came forward that, you know, hadn't before. And it was a really nice feeling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like that was like when my Kickstarter succeeded, and then I got to you know it was joyful. Like it was this really joyful feeling of because I had booked studio time and all this stuff to be like, oh, now I just take this money and I now I give it to that guy, what? the the uh, recording engineer, <laughs> and all these string players are coming too. I get to give them some of this money. You know, it became a really cool like exchange and knowing I had this team or like a tribe behind what I was trying to do. So, ah, just, I, so I love crowdfunding and I also like, you know, it's scary. It ain't easy. Yeah. No. In your book, you talk about the campaigns that have been successful and kind of the science that, that goes behind a successful campaign. Can you talk a little bit about that? Totally. So it, a good analogy would be this sort of unicorn phenomenon that's happening right now in the world of business 
everybody wants to have a unicorn business, meaning a billion dollar business. And this is supposed to be a normal number, which is absurd. Not everybody's going to create Snapchat or Instagram or Mm -hmm. Google. Um, And I think that when we look also at, not only do I think this, I know this because I researched it, most people in their minds, when they think about crowdfunding campaigns, they think about Amanda Palmer, who made $1.3 million, or Zach Bramf, or the Pebble Watch, you know, these giant, giant campaigns that raised millions of dollars, because those are the ones you read about in the media. But the truth is, the average crowdfunding campaign raises $7,000, a far cry from what you read about. And most campaigns you'll never read about at all, because Mm -hmm. they're people like us just asking our communities for small-scale money. And so that's the first thing that I think people have to understand is that you might want $50,000 or want $100,000. You're what you have and who you know, you probably are more in the line of five to 10, maybe 20 if you're really lucky. Um, So there's that. The second thing to know is in the science of crowdfunding, when I was researching, there was all kinds of things to know, like your campaign should only be 30 days. There is a certain amount of ways you have to ask and just posting it on social media is absolutely not going to get you Mm -hmm. far. It's all about your newsletter. It's all about how you ask in your newsletter. Then there's these really interesting studies. Women tend to know how to ask and get money in a better way than men. I recommend you find that uh, uh-huh. study and read about like what are the what are the words to use in your emails. What you mentioned before about that sort of begging, it's just like dating. If you look desperate and you're beggy, you're never going to get a date. But if you sort of have your have a different approach, you know, you'll have more dates than you'll know what to do with. It's yeah. the same in crowdfunding, but there's a fine line. Yeah. That um the, the direct asking, that was one of the things my friends, I should say Demetrius's name is my friend Demetrius Bagley. Uh, I keep referring to this guy, but should pr- probably say his name since I'm also saying how much he helped me. Um, he, he, that was one of those things. It was like, you have to ask people directly. And that was one of the hardest things to do. And it didn't always work. Yeah. <laughs> but I did it. And, you know, it it worked. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's really interesting because I wanted to be like, okay, I'm just doing this thing and pick it up if you like. But... You got to go directly to people and ask them. It's, yeah, it's a trip. But then you get to, then people who want to help you and want to be a part of your project, are they have the opportunity to be a part of it. That is the key. And I talk about this a lot in the book. I call it your VIP list. It's like, you need to know the people by name. How much do you think they're good for? Oh, wow. Right? So all the way down to like the number you think you can get from them. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you might... You'll be surprised. There will yeah. be someone that will come out with, with more than you expected. And I was surprised, too. There were a lot of colleagues who I thought would be good for something. They wrote me back like, I don't have any money. I'm broke. My kid, my this, my that. And they give you all these reasons why. And that's that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. You can't get personal about that. You just, you know, move on to the next one. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was another major lesson. For yeah. Sure. You know, one of the things I learned that is sort of related to that is that no matter how much I was posting... And how many people were like, wow, you're posting a lot. Someone would be like, oh, you did a crowdfunding campaign? Yeah. I'm like, how did you not see that? I was like telling the whole world I yeah. was dying. Yeah. I had, I had people call the day. Like I sent the thank you. My crowdfunding campaign is over now. And three people called and mailed me checks the next day, uh, which was awesome. But I was like, how did you not? I mean, you think you're shouting it out from the yeah. top of every rooftop. And then 
people didn't see it. So to the people that get annoyed by these posts, that's why we post so much right. because people still don't see. That's right. When Once my uh, campaign was finished and I sent people their stuff, I got several emails from people saying, you sent, you sent me the stuff. I really got it. Like they were shocked. Did you have that experience too? <laughs> no, but this is something that you, we do sadly hear about is that it takes longer than you anticipated and people don't fulfill every single tier that they promise in the time that they promised yeah. it. I mean, I remember I funded a documentary. Uh, it was a DVD. It was a couple of years ago. I literally got the DVD in the mail like two years after I had like, uh, yeah, it was great to get it. It was like a little surprise yeah. that arrived. But yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's really hard to stick to those deadlines. Yeah. And you know, I didn't stick to my deadlines. It took me longer to finish, but I just sent everyone a thing and told them. Right. <laughs> it was like... You know, I, I think I love the way you're able to build a community around this stuff. And now these people that uh, contributed to my Kickstarter are like, oh, that's the guy that sent me the stuff. So let me, I'll give him money again. Yeah, it's about being your word, really. I mean, I, I took a long time to deliver my final piece, which was actually CrowdStart. And ah. I went through an edit, then another edit, then it wasn't good enough. And it, you know, I mean, this happens. But yeah, people are still surprised when you actually can be true to your word. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I feel like is sort of a pitfall that gets under it. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, gets under my skin is um, over crowdfunding people. You know, like there's a lot of times I see a crowd. Someone will do a Kickstarter or GoFundMe or whatever. For something that I'm like, oh, don't do for for that, because it kind of like I feel like it it affects everyone who is in who would want to do this. Yeah. So I think that's the that's the that is the problem, right? Is like you you look at how someone doesn't do it well, and you go, ooh, it's almost like social media, right? You see that person yeah. you don't like doing it, and then you decide you don't like it at all, but then you have to really focus on the people that are doing it well. So I think that's, it's the same with crowdfunding. And, you know, there has been a lot of, a lot of talk about that, like, well, people will eventually get burned out. But I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, I've been seeing Sting in concert since 1984, and I'm not burned out. Like, I will still <laughs> go see him when he plays, right? Yeah. I mean, you too. All these, you know, these sort of legacy artists, even the smaller bands that I love that are not stadium level, I've been seeing for 20 years and will continue to go see. So if you have a connection with something and you love and you are a fan, you, I, I will still buy every book that my favorite writers write, even even if they don't have the smash hit. Like Doug, Douglas Copeland, any book that man writes, I will buy it forever. Uh -huh. So I think that's how fans are, and that's the good news. Yeah, definitely. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for Pleasure. joining me today. Where is the best place to find you online? It, you can find me at ariellehyatt.com. On Twitter, I'm CyberPR. And if you wanna check out CrowdStart, you can do that at Amazon. Amazing, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me.
That was my radio from Solvent. That was actually a remix of that song. And uh, Perspex cut up remix. My black bean soup is still being made. Takes a long time. If you were watching me on Snapchat, you saw the steps of this soup. You're not going to want to miss that type of thing. So do follow me on Snapchat because I do post pictures and videos of the process of my cooking, which you really, you want to catch that. That's really all we've got for the podcast. I don't have anything else to tell you. Thank you so much. Uh, send me an email, mikeypot at gmail.com. Follow me, look at me, write to me on social media. And thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week.